Warning, this podcast is known by the state of California to contain spoilers. This is it, Jennifer. Your big break in TV. Welcome to prime time, bitch. After the credits roll, there's always more to tell. Especially when the video sales are doing really well. From shock treatment to Jason X to Police Academy 6. This is Sequel Cast, and they are unsurpassed at following a franchise until the better end. This is Sequel Cast, and your hosts have asked that I inform you that the show will now begin. Hello and welcome to Sequel Cast 2. Sequel Cast 2 is a podcast looking at films in a franchise, one movie at a time. I'm your host, Matt Bradley Shergi. With me is William Thrasher. Welcome to the podcast, bitch. <laughs> and uh, but this, seriously, I love I love you all. Uh, <laughs> this time around, we have a special guest, Russell Dieball. Uh, is that how you pronounce it? Uh, yes, sir. Okay, great. Um, I should have asked that beforehand. That would have been better. Uh, not only has he written such plays as Out of Joint, and he's acted in productions of uh, Vanya and Sonya and Masha and Spike, he's also done uh, audio commentaries and uh, writing for Shout Factory. Russell, welcome to Sequel Cast Two. Uh, thank you very much. Really uh, an honor to be here. Absolutely. Um, and full disclosure, I've um, been I've done some reviews uh, of discs from Shout Factory uh, for Battleship Pretension over the years. And uh, in fact, I noticed uh, that's how I first met Russell. Just sort of sent him a, a thank you and uh, for um, doing very amusing commentaries for Sergeant Pepper's and um, oh, the John Stamos picture. Uh- Never too young to die. Never too young to die. Yes. Flying like you've never known. Great film. It, it is. It is. And my my wife uh, walked in on me finishing up uh, Never Too Young to Die uh, with her battling sort of on the dam or the bridge or whatever it is, and she was like, "What the hell is this shit?" But then at the same time, she couldn't stop watching it. So that it says uh, yeah. says everything. <laughs> Totally fascinating film. Uh, absolutely. Um, and, oh, if, if I could, I could ask, sure. By by an amazing coincidence, just a few weeks ago at a local horror convention, uh, I purchased uh, the Shout Factory Cinematic Titanic DVD from Mary Jo Peel. She and Bill Corbett were nice enough to sign it. Uh, did you have a hand in that DVD set? Uh, no, I didn't. I wish I did. Man. Um, uh, it, it's it, it's so great that they put that set out. Uh, obviously, I mean they do a lot of yeah they do a lot of MST3K stuff now. Obviously, but uh, Cinematic Titanic feels like that last little missing piece, hmm. uh, especially if you're a fan of the Joel era stuff. Oh yeah, certainly. And I think with um, yeah, I don't know with the digital distribution and all these things, there's so much. Uh, so many different ways for for people to to do their own you know variation on that or do your own thing that's so much uh in some ways it's a lot easier to to do that stuff than it used to be um nightmare on elm street 3 dream warriors came out in 87 directed by chuck russell uh produced by bob shea screenplay by wes craven bruce wagner frank darabont and chuck russell based on a story by wes craven and bruce wagner starring uh heather lathan had ah heather Lagenkamp. Patricia Arquette, Lara Fishburne, Robert England, music by the fantastic Angelo Badalamenti, 
cinematography. Roy H. Wagner, uh, off a budget of $4.5 million in, uh, domestically in the U.S. and Canada, made $44.7 million. And I, I pulled up the box office for eighty-seven. And um, where do you think this film set on this, Russell? I'm going to take a stab. Yep. I'm going to think maybe it cracked the top ten. Let's say nine. And Thrasher? I'll say seventh. Okay, nope, 24th. Oh. But uh, what, what's interesting is it did better uh, that year than such movies as Spaceballs, Wall Street, and The Last Emperor. Wow. But um, slightly above it are Full Metal Jacket, Planes, Trains, and Automobiles, and uh, the the James Bond picture, the first James Bond picture with Timothy Dalton, The Living Daylights, which um, I actually quite like The Living Daylights. That's a good picture. Yeah, oh, absolutely. It's not as um, ridiculous as License to Kill, although License to Kill has its own charms. I think the Dalton Bonds were really underrated. Mm-hmm. I can agree with you there. And uh, it was, um, oh, I think Hulu or something did a pretty good, or no, was it Stars? Uh, one of those did a pretty good Bond retrospective documentary, and Timothy Dalton expresses excitement when he saw the, the new, um, somewhat new Casino Royale film in uh, what 2007 or so with uh, uh, oh, Daniel Craig and said that is what they were trying to do with um, when he did the Bond film. So that's what he really wanted to do was return to the spirit of the books. As I recall, I remember uh, an interview with Dalton where he said when he got the gig to be Bond that he actually read all of the books. Right. Uh, yep. Heaven forbid that you would do that research. <laughs> um, <laughs> um but, I, I mean, I think you can really see it. Uh, his bond is just so cold. And it was a nice shift from Roger Moore, uh, who was so much goofier and warm and Reagan era. But, uh, <laughs> I, yeah, um, I love all the bonds. Yeah, his, his bond is almost clinical. Um, but, yeah, Nightmare on Elm Street 3, uh, sort of a, a broad overview of the plot there's a bunch of teenagers in Elm Street, and they're all having nightmares, and they're in a sort of uh, a Weston Hospital because they're you know trying to commit suicide and all these things, and they run across Freddy Krueger, and who helps them? But Nancy is now a, um, a psychology student, sort of starting her psychologist or doctor or something, starting her she's, career. She's an intern. Intern. So there you go. This is like part of her residency. Her residency. There you go. I couldn't think of the word. Thank you, Thrasher. Um, and stuff happens, and also John Saxon fights a skeleton. <laughs> Nightmare on Elm Street 3. Uh, Russell, um, we were, were chatting a bit online uh, before recording this episode, and, and you mentioned this film held up better than you expected. Why is that? Well, you know, I think it's been a while since I've uh, watched these movies. I looked through the first three uh, just over the past week, kind of in preparation for this, and... What struck me about watching all three of them is it's like, okay, where does this franchise kind of start to go off the rails and mm. get too silly? And I had always kind of, in retrospect, thought it was this one. But Dream Warriors holds up so well. I think it's it's probably when we think of Freddy today, Dream Warriors Freddy is kind of what we're really thinking about. Uh, you know, one is sure. a fabulous horror film, but three really uh, strikes that balance of the horror and the humor that we associate with uh, Freddy. Um, 
additionally i think this one just has like uh the most interesting cast of characters they're all very strongly drawn it's not just horny teenagers or you know mm. that, that are just lined up to be chopped down uh, they all seem to have very distinct personalities and i think uh, it's just as uh, important for your victims to be interesting as your killer uh, it's not in just these distinct movies. personalities they all have distinct backstories too which they they trust the audience to kind of pick up on absolutely absolutely um and they all seem to have like one major character trait that makes it very easy to remember them uh i have a hard time remembering the names of the characters but i go ah it's the one in the wheelchair who likes dungeons and dragons done (laughs) (laughs) got it you know um so it's it's very helpful and i think the movie doesn't have a lot of fat on it. It, it 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 trusts you it trusts that you are watching a part three movie and that you have seen part one and two so it just goes uh and that's really enjoyable yeah you don't get any flashbacks or i'm, I'm thinking in particular of um i think gee friday the 13th oh seven opens up with a 10 minute montage of like the best kills from the prior movies like you don't get any of that yeah as an old man narrates in fact the same old man i think that was in the second film or something there was a man named jason on the lake and he killed these teenagers and now he's coming for you but yeah and this you don't get all that ridiculousness the plot just starts you don't it, it works good as a standalone film but if you've seen the first film uh you do get that added punch knowing uh nancy and her history with Freddy Krueger, and even just the uh, the opening credits are are quite artful. You get these extreme close-ups, and at first I thought, oh, is she cooking breakfast? What's happening? And it, it turns out she's doing a sort of papier-mâché uh, recreation of the house from the first film, and even with the bars on the window. Yeah, it's a really nice opening sequence. It, it, it sets a mood, um, and is it, just visually very interesting. Well, the other thing is, you know, we've seen in all the previous films that the, the, the kids inevitably come up with strategies to stay awake. And this is just a very creative strategy that you just give yourself a hobby and you just work on that hobby all night. And, and a really good strategy. And in addition to that, uh, as I recall, she's taking spoonfuls of instant coffee and chasing it <laughs> oh, with Diet, Diet Coke. Coke. Yes. Oh, it's um, so gross. It's so wonderful. And, and, and it's nice that we just start with that. You know, in the other movies, it takes them a while to figure out, oh, I can't sleep, you know, otherwise Freddy will get me. And here it's like, nope, I already know. I'm on it. <laughs> and the other thing I like, I do like when, when her when her mother comes home and, and, and catches her. I love that. I, I love that in, in that scene we establish so much about her, her family situation without having to have anything telegraphed. Uh, you know, they trust us to understand that we're seeing the mother coming home from a date, that she's got a strange man downstairs. Uh, a man we never see, which only makes it more horrific in the, in the, towards the end of the movie when there's a nightmare that's based on a recreation of the same exact moment. Oh, exactly. It, it's great. And I... And I think, again, with all the characters here, those those character traits they have, uh, obviously in especially 80s slasher films, there's that uh, response to the times. Oh, our kids are drinking and having sex. Mm-hmm. Uh, therefore, they must die. And, and here with uh, Kristen, I believe uh, her name is Patricia Arquette, um, 
Patricia Arquette in a slasher movie too, by the way. It's mind blowing now, <laughs> but um, but she's from a broken home and a mother who kind of abandoned, you know, isn't really paying that much attention to her. And it's interesting that they kind of uh, introduce. Uh, lack of family values, to use a buzzword from that era, as uh, a reason why she could be victimized. Well, I, I look at this and I see this more as kind of the the stigmatization of mental illness because what what is the mother? Because you know her daughter is in is in real because of Freddie physical but also psychological peril, and all her, her mother ever says is, oh, she's just doing it to get attention. It never occurs to her that her daughter might have a real problem that needs to be dealt with in a meaningful way. That would just get in mom's way. She's got to yeah. go get get the bourbon and hang out with her man. And, and it's nice, it, much like in the first film, uh, the, the parent figure, in this case just the mother, is flawed. It's not like the, the dull parents in the, the second movie where the father keeps on thinking, like, oh, uh, son, you're setting our parrot on fire. You know, he's trying to find a logical explanation for everything. And in in this one, it's just, um, yeah, the mother has problems, the teens have problems. Patricia Arquette is quite, uh, is in the lead in the film. She's very vulnerable, and she doesn't overplay it. It comes across as a very grounded performance, which you don't always get in these uh, pictures. Arquette in general is just always really good in that uh, underplayed style, and uh, I've, I've found in pretty much any movie I've seen her in, she does uh, this kind of wonderful intangible thing in her acting, in that she makes everybody on screen with her, and whether that's like Johnny Depp and Ed Wood or, or uh, Christian Slater in True Romance, but she makes everybody on screen with her better. She's mm. a really good listener. Uh, uh, which is really important, I think, uh, at least in stage acting, uh, but certainly in film as well. Yeah, and she's certainly, a, I find, a better and a more subtle uh, actress than uh, Heather, Laden, Heather Lagenkamp, who is okay, but um, I don't, just I, is not as compelling for whatever reason. And she doesn't have she doesn't have the gravitas. Uh, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um. She tries really hard, but uh, in uh, Nancy's first several scenes, I feel like, uh, you know, she's introduced just kind of out of the blue and um, already kind of understands that there's a Freddy issue here when uh, Arquette's character is doing the the nursery rhyme. But uh, Heather's very smiley. (laughs) <laughs> through, through the, yes. the first opening third and I'm like no you've been through some stuff <laughs> shouldn't you be a little more concerned about this um, and she gets there but those opening scenes you don't have that kind of uh, world weary thing that you would get in say uh, uh, Jamie Lee Curtis in Halloween H2O mm, sure uh, also you know she has the, the white streak in her, in her hair which I think is a nice touch but she still her her face looks very young. I almost wish they would have cast a different actress or maybe done some light aging makeup. All right, so I, my wife and I had a debate about that white streak. Okay. Uh, my wife's stance was that white streak is a ham-fisted way to establish that time has passed since the first movie. <laughs> I take the stance that that white streak represents psychic trauma, like the white streak that Bruce Campbell gets in Evil Dead Two. Where do you all fall on? I, I lean towards the uh, the Bruce Campbell. 
uh, on that one because they didn't bother to age her up in any other way. Right. And and, and if she's an intern, I assume she's not, uh, you know, too much older. Well, Although, yeah, I don't know if you noticed, but she loses the streak when she enters the dream world. Oh my god, you're right. I did not notice <laughs> that, but that's... Huh. Whether that's um, symbolism or a continuity or I don't know, but odd. Well, because it becomes a big deal where, you know, later on in the movie when she talks about how, you know, everybody has some sort of special skill or power in their dreams. Right. I, I did some thinking about that because they never establish what her special thing is. And I think her special thing is in her dreams, she's free of all her mental trauma. Hmm. Oh, that's her power is that she's like psychologically invulnerable when she's in her dream state. Yeah, because she's not it's doing like yeah she's not doing backflips or punching through walls. That's for sure. Um, interesting. I, I think you know another um, one performance I did like in this picture was uh, Craig Wat- Watson as Doctor Gordon. It's he just comes across as you know there's I don't there's no I don't know if there's a real flirtation between the two or not, but it's. Uh, he he looks a little bit like a young Bill Maher, is what I think when I look at him. <laughs> I kept getting him confused with Judge Reinhold. I can see that, yeah, a sort of affable nature. He's not as much of a as an asshole as I thought he was going to be, and it just sort of have, having a nice older male figure in the movie was um, it was interesting because usually uh, in these pictures the teenagers are the uh, ones that you know know the truth and the adults never believe him and and that he gets kind of won over to her to their side with the experimental treatments is a is a nice uh, sort of character arc um also a young lawrence fishburne as the orderly yeah credited as larry fishburne yep uh he was also larry fishburne i believe in death wish two well yeah in apocalypse now um and uh, John Saxon, uh, I wish he was more in this movie because it's so neat to see a grizzled John Saxon. Oh God, yes, uh, Saxon's really, really wonderful in that uh, scene uh, where Nancy finds him in the bar. Mm-hmm. Um, and and it's in addition to having that Nancy, it's it's just a, another wonderful callback to the first movie and to show that this didn't just affect her. Um. It impacted the parents of all those now dead kids as well. Um, uh, yeah, it's it's always great to see Saxon. You mentioned Russell. You like the uh, the kids uh, in this movie, other than um, you know Kristen, played by Patricia Arquette. Which one stands out to you? Oh, uh, Jennifer Rubin. Mm, mm-hmm. um, I'm beautiful and I'm bad. Um, <laughs> she yes. has such a wonderful transformation. When uh-huh. she the dream world. And, and um, I'm going to age myself here, but um, I actually I saw this movie on the original run uh, when I was in high school, um, and Jennifer Rubin was kind of ever so briefly sort of an it girl, hmm. where pe- people thought she was going to go somewhere, and 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 watching this movie. Um, especially with its uh, mental hospital uh, setting. Uh, she reminds me a little bit of uh, kind of a, uh, a B-level Angelina Jolie, um, which sure. uh, made me uh, kind of, you know, not uh, B 
be able to stop thinking uh, final girl interrupted uh, throughout <laughs> the whole movie. Um, but uh, uh, yeah, I think, I think she's really, she's really great in this uh, and has an arc um, and uh, the scene, obviously that uh, Matt, we talked about briefly uh, online elsewhere. Um, uh, her nightmare with Freddie is pretty powerful mm-hmm. for what could just be a cheesy 80s horror film scene yeah let's, let's um, yeah, i think hers is hers is the best nightmare slash best death in this movie oh yeah yeah, yeah it might oh, be the yeah. best death it's not the most I- iconic one and we'll get into that one in a minute but uh yeah let, let's talk about that nightmare because everyone has trauma and her trauma is she did a lot of um hard drugs and uh yeah, she's a recovering drug addict recovering drug addict and and she has a really marvelous scene. I wouldn't mind more of it, where uh, one of the orderlies sort of is, is talking with her. And at first I thought, oh, he wants to sleep with her, but instead he says, oh, you, let's just get high and take all these pills, like in the back. And he's just really trying to tempt her, and uh, he's being real sleaze, sleazy about it. And uh, and she holds her own, and she's and she's tough, but uh, she has a, a vulnerability to her as well but in a different way from patricia arquette and it's nice to have um strong female characters i mean throughout the whole series nightmare on elm street is pretty good about that with the exception of of the second film which is its own complicated ball of wax (laughs) yes it's it's nice to have her character uh a terran uh i think is her name um Mm -hmm. ruben's character to be a strong character and yet be flawed and 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 vulnerable and uh yeah i completely agree the uh, elm street films in general do a really good job of portraying that uh very few of the women in these movies feel just like complete and total victims uh they all have some strength and the way she looks with the spiked up hair and the leather and the knives it reminded me of some of the um I mean, it looks like one of the bad guys you fight in Double Dragon or Final Fight in the arcade. <laughs> like it's very much, or the Warriors or something. It's very much that um, that visual style. And although it's over the top, I mean that that is what the punk uh, rock in the U.S. looked at the time to some degree, depending on where you went. Uh, and it's uh, such visually such a shocking change, but also like she's smiling, she's having fun in her dream persona. And that Freddy changes his claws into the uh, into the syringes, and and you see the little holes in her the former scars in in her arm open like little mouths suckling, wanting to get the yeah, the injection. Mouths, that that is so wonderfully disturbing. What a great physical That's effect! Probably the most disturbing image I have seen in this series so far. Yeah, I mean, well, I mean, because I think that's something that uh, if you can't directly relate with it, you can at least empathize. It, it's a great visual depiction of addiction. Right, and even if you um, haven't done heroin, and I have not, everyone, you know, most people have had a shot at some point in their life. You know what that feels like, or, you know, if someone gets cut, you know what it feels like to cut yourself. But, yeah, it's, it's just very disturbing. She sells it well. Um, it's not like she explodes or something over the top happens after she gets injected and Freddy's laughing. It's uh, it, it's well done. But uh, I would say, out of the dreams, you know, one of the, the most famous line, I think, from this film is, Welcome to Prime Time, bitch. Where um, we, we have a character that wants to be on TV, that wants to be a TV star. Birth of a catchphrase. Yes. And uh, why don't you describe that scene, Thrasher? 
Oh well, so one of one of the the girls, uh, you know, her her ambition is that when she gets out of the facility, she wants to move to Los Angeles. She wants to try to be an actress, and so one of the things she does is she stays up late and watches late night TV, trying to study performances and to study uh, study you know the way the way people behave. And so she's in this waiting room watching the TV, and you know, Larry Fishburne is like, "You're supposed to be in your room, but I'll tell you what, I'll give you some more time. Just I never saw you," uh-huh. and she's watching. Uh, She's watching Zsa Zsa Gabor uh, being interviewed by Dick Cavett. It's Zsa Zsa Gabor and mm-hmm. Dick Cavett, yep. which, uh, which amazed me that they got Dick Cavett. That is so cool. Um, but during the interview, Dick Cavett just turns to face her and starts taunting her. Uh, and Freddy grows crazy, robot arms out of the TV. His head comes out of the front, picks the girl up. Uh, and, you know, you always wanted to... to in television, welcome to prime time, bitch, and slams her head through the screen. Uh, and it's really grotesque seeing Freddy like morph out of the top of the TV and having the plastic kind of fused to him. Um, and then later, when her body's discovered, I mean, she is hanging from the television with her head just awkwardly wedged. Oh, that's horrific. And then you see the burn marks later when they move the TV out of the way. Ugh. Oh, yeah. I, I always would, when, when Fishburne discovers her, I, I don't recall. I don't think there was really any question of how did she pull that off? Yeah, no, yeah, there's not. <laughs> she just, you know, did like an Air Jordan leap head first <laughs> into the TV. It's like, hmm. yeah, but everyone just kind of goes, huh, well, you know, uh, you know, these, these kids are troubled. <laughs> it's like, hmm, okay. What I really dig about that scene, though, too, I feel like with having Dick Cavett and Jaja there, this really kind of demarcates the transition in this series mm. to the more kind of humorous, uh, just the presence of, of Dick Cavett and especially Jaja. Um, it kind of tells you we're, we're, we're pulling away a little bit from what we've seen in the first two movies. And speaking uh, of Dick Cavett, I, I was browsing around on Hulu and they have uh, select episodes of the Dick Cavett show. And I saw nice. one, yeah, and I saw one where he interviewed some uh, horror writer. He interviewed George Romero a panel with George Romero, Stephen King. Um, oh, who's the guy Stephen King co-wrote the Talisman with? Peter Straub, and yeah. um, and the person that wrote the uh, um, oh Ste- Stepford Wives, the the author of that book. And it, it was what a fascinating. I mean, unrelated to Nightmare on Elm Street, really. But I mean, what a fascinating. Ira um, Levin, that's who the fourth person was. But what an interesting. A discussion of people to, to talk about horror with and Stephen King was the one that joked around the most and uh, some of them were a bit more serious but George Romero seemed embarrassed to be there and he's like well these guys writing books that's really difficult he felt it was quite easy to make a film suspenseful and scary hmm how fascinating I don't know I mean there's such different disciplines I, I, I think so too <laughs> and it's a bit strange they didn't have I think the reason why George Romero was on there is they were there to promote uh, Creepshow Oh, of course, of course. Which, um, of course, they, they worked on, and uh, those are fun films in their own right. But yeah, back back to Nightmare 3. Um, such such good effects in this film. I think they really stepped up their game with the effects. The giant Freddy Krueger snake. Consuming. Oh, oh, yeah. Oh, that's Which is another nice. thing that seems right out of Evil Dead 2. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that whole sequence with the house, like tearing itself apart and, and it, it, it's very it feels very Sam Raimi oh yeah, yeah it feels, definitely 
I, yeah, I, I could see that. It's just, but I love how how detailed the, the the Freddy snake is, how gross it is, and it also makes me think a lot of the kills in the scene. It's not necessarily Freddy Krueger as Freddy Krueger. It's Robert England doing a voiceover to a special effect that's doing things, um, and and yet it still works. You know, the the snake looks enough like Freddy Krueger. You can tell what it's supposed to be. All the nightmares in this movie are are so uh, much more elaborate than what we've seen before. I felt like in the first two movies, mm -hmm. beyond the boiler room or whatever, uh, like uh, in Freddy's Revenge, the second one, yes. one of the nightmares the the lead has is you know, it, it, like it, oh, it takes place in his class, and they just kind of reuse the same set, but they really up the ante in this one. Uh, to make them their own really strong set pieces, and they feel so tailor-made for the characters who are getting bumped off. Well, I know, like the, like the boy who, who suffers from sleepwalking, that's why he's in the facility, yeah. and he likes to make puppets, that's his hobby, and just Freddy yeah. turning him into a puppet to make him sleepwalk, and just his, his veins and arteries pulled out of his wrists and ankles. That That is probably, that's the, that's the scene that disturbed me the most. Well, and then what? What a fantastic sequence, right? Because he walks him up to uh, you know the top floor of the of the hospital, and he's going to jump out the window and kill himself. And meanwhile, you you have a character that's essentially a a, a mute who has to run around. He's banging, uh, smacking on the walls, trying to get the orderly, trying to get Lawrence Fishburne awake or someone to help him, and they can't get to him in time, so they have to watch uh, one of their friends, one of their fellow fellow people suffering at the hands of Freddy kill himself and it's just and and you get the wide shot and the specter of freddy krueger cutting the the ribbons and you get some nice hand-drawn animation there of the the, the tethers kind of moving uh yeah it's just a, just a horrific uh, suspenseful a very imaginative sequence oh it's terrific yeah it's it's just i mean it's flat out great and that one uh I'm 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 with you there, Thrasher. With the uh, the 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 veins being pulled out mm -hmm. of uh, his arms, it's uh, it it is a tough watch. It is. I mean, I've I've had um, a friend or two unfortunately commit suicide over the years, and it's uh, it 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 adds it adds a punch to the film. I mean, that was certainly in the news a lot uh, about teen suicides uh, on the rise, and. Uh, you really feel sad for these kids because they're all in one facility together and it's really more, these kids are friends first, but then Dream Warriors second. And even though, yes, they become a wizard or some of them have kind of stupid transformations, it's still, uh, they have a nice chemistry together. They work as a, as a unit. And I do like seeing them interact and just kind of do normal things together. Like, I love that scene where they're all in the room playing D&D. That was so, that was so charming. <laughs> to see them just hanging out, playing a game. But also it was nice to see a movie from the 80s that, like, shows a realistic depiction of d, &D. Well, it doesn't immediately <laughs> condemn it like the uh, fabulous Tom Hanks picture of Mazes and Monsters. Oh. But, I mean, that would, uh... Man, if Shout Factory would ever get a hold of that, I'd love to see that get a, a fancy release. Oh my, you have no idea how much I would love that to happen. <laughs> oh, I, Mazes and Monsters is my jam. <laughs> It's. Uh, I, I wish I still kept my. Co I got a a DVD release of it from 2006 when I worked at a, a video store in Atlanta, Georgia, and um, I wish I would have kept it, even though it was terrible quality. But the 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 cover art was clearly Tom Hanks cover art from Apollo 13, slightly. 
you know, <laughs> slightly cropped just enough so you couldn't tell where it was from. But it's like, that's nothing, you know, it doesn't have the sort of uh, Afro-perm thing he has going on in the film. But, yeah. Jeez. And not to get, get off on too much of a tangent, if Shout Factory does do their own re-release of Mazes and Monsters, I do write for tabletop games if you want, like, if they want, like, a commentary or help with special <laughs> features, I'd love to contribute. Oh, oh, so noted. So noted. I will pass that on because uh, I doubt I doubt Hanks will want to participate. So <laughs> they would need some bonus features. You never. You know, the one actor I wish would talk about their past in a horror film is. Um, oh, I can't think of her name. I'm an idiot. Jennifer Aniston in Leprechaun. Oh yeah. She ref- oh, yes. refuses to talk about, it, but I would love to get her on the record just to try and say something. Um, uh, another thing I like about this film, Nightmare 3, is Angelo Badalamenti's score. Uh, he's, you know, perhaps best known for scoring most of David Lynch's films in the Twin Peaks TV series and so forth. And um, it, it sounds 80s, 80s as hell. It, it's heavy on the synth, but there's a real nice uh, urgency, especially to his music in the nightmare sequences. And it does reuse sort of the titular da-da-da-da theme from the original film. It's very good use of the, the Elm Street theme. But it doesn't overdo it. It's not like the Friday the 13th movies sometimes bane you over the head with the stuff. And in this one, it's a more subtle use of the original theme. But yeah, I, I just find the score quite enjoyable. And now I really want to track down a copy. His presence was probably the biggest su- surprise for me mm-hmm. in rewatching the movie. Sure. Uh, just flipping through the credits, and I was like, uh, I. Obviously, uh, Twin Peaks: The Return just uh, finished up about a month ago, so I've definitely been in a David Lynch, yeah. uh, Bad Elemente mood, and so seeing his name, I was just like, "Oh, oh, yeah!" I got <laughs> even more excited to rewatch it just to kind of take in um, more of his music in a non-Lynch context. Did and you Did you can... finish up uh, Twin Peaks: The Return? Oh God, yes. Yeah, I, I have to say, I um. It, it took us a while. My, I sort of had my wife and I, she had never seen the entire old series, so we watched that up until the new one and watched it every week. Um, and it, it was pretty straight. You know, I, I watched it after the fact on the VHS release in the late 90s, but I still felt like I was waiting a while for that story. And um, Lynch, it's David Lynch being subversive as hell, and they clearly let him and uh, Mark Frost do whatever they, they wanted. And that's refreshing, but it's also frustrating at the same time. But it, Lynch has never been about um, plot, folk. He's more about mood, I think, than plot, or characters than plot. And it's, uh, what an interesting um, and sometimes infuriating series. But I do admit Absolutely. breaking, I do admit breaking into tears and crying in the second episode where you get to see, um, some old characters make their make a, make a cameo appearances. Yeah. It was just it, it take you know you do as weird as the characters in Twin Peaks get you do make a connection with them and uh, although Twin Peaks the Returns may or may not give you the answers you're looking for it's undeniably Lynch and it could have been so much worse. Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you think about all the things that get rebooted and brought back and you're left a little disappointed yeah it felt like it felt like lynch and frost knew right off the bat that people are going to be disappointed no matter what we do why don't we just do what we want to do (laughs) yeah Uh, 
And and I think that was the right call. I don't know if I loved every moment of it, but sure. taken as a whole as a whole work, I kind of love it. Um, but uh, I've always been a big Twin Peaks fan. Um, from you know cherry pie and coffee to weird fire walk with me stuff, and so I was ready to settle in, and it was nice to kind of have that appointment TV. Yeah, uh, I uh, I live here. I live. Um in portland oregon and I, i've yet to make the pilgrimage to uh you know some of those locations up in washington but i really need to do that because i've heard it's a fun place to visit go have go have some pie yes it's, the pie is actually genuinely good oh good <laughs> what about the coffee uh the coffee was just coffee for me sure. but okay. they, maybe they've tried to step it up <laughs> <laughs> Very good. I love I love that Michael Sarah cameo in the new Twin Peaks. It was wonderful. Yes. Just channeling his Marlon Brando, his sleepiest Marlon Brando. Oh, it's so wonderful. Lovely, lovely scene. And uh, I mean, they're, they're certainly going to get acting nominations at the Emmys next year, if nothing else, because um, all this comic Lachlan just has so much fun doing different versions. But um, back to Nightmare on Elm Street 3. That's a terrible tantrum. <laughs> it, um, so, I mean, let's talk about the... Uh, we talked about a lot of the dreams so far. Uh, Dungeons and Dragons, uh, the wizard sequence, the wizard master. They don't call it Dungeons and Dragons. They call it wizard... Or, I don't know if they name what the game is, but certainly the they, dungeon they master. Never named the game. It's yeah, but the dungeon master referred to as the wizard master is wizard master. Although I noticed the screen just says wizard master. Yeah, uh, although I noticed in the back they look there looked to be a AD and D poster behind them as they're playing I, the game. I believe I believe you're right. Looks like some sort of monster manual or something, something with a dragon on it. Certainly, I know that doesn't narrow it down, but. Uh, <laughs> I was quite. I was watching some of the documentaries on the Blu-ray set I have of the series, and uh, Frank Darabont talks about in his version of the script, it had a very elaborate. Because the kid was uh, into the the fantasy, Freddy Krueger was going to change into a dragon, and the kid was going to turn into a knight and fight him, and going to have all this transformation. And then, for budgetary reasons, it was just a uh, a guy in a Dracula cloak shooting green beams at. Um, Freddy in a dark hallway. Which I strangely liked only because that that was the most 80s special effect in this movie was, was <laughs> the yeah, spell energy sure. that the kid was firing. But all in all, I found I found that, that sequence to be to be very charming. I like I, I like that I like that in his his dream power is that he's a wizard with real magical powers. The, the one thing that I kept trying to decipher, um, when the group is all hypnotized, they can enter the dream together. They realize that they're in a dream when the little Newtonian ball clacker, when the balls detach and start floating around. Yeah. And I could not for the life of me tell if that was a really good compositing effect or if that was a really bad early CGI effect. Because the balls were almost too perfect in their shiny spheriness. I, I would think yeah. it's a composite. Um but it, maybe it was on strings, but yeah, the way it moved was too smooth for it to... Mm, I don't know. Yeah, not sure either. That's an interesting question. <laughs> yeah. Uh, also interesting is uh, we get a Harryhausen shout-out where there's sort of a subplot <laughs> where the doctor meets up with John Saxon, who's the father of uh, Nancy, and they, he knows where they buried Freddy's bones, and they've got to do some some ritual, which ends up 
being a deus ex machina, you know, sort of in the in the last fight scene. Well, and, well this mystery nun keeps showing up, and at that's one right, point yeah. she tells, she gives the Doctor Freddy's horrifying origin story, <laughs> uh, and then also says that Freddy can be, this can all end if Freddy is buried on hollowed ground. Right. And um, the, the nun, I don't think, is especially successful in this film. It feels more like something from the Omen, but it's um, they get into it more in the other pictures, and you get the twist that oh, it's Freddy's mother, but um, yeah. Which I don't mind the reveal that the nun is is Freddy Krueger's uh, mother. I don't like the reveal that she's dead. Like her. I, her being a ghost is, feels just a little bit too much, especially when you got to wonder, well, where were you in the last two films if you could come back as a ghost? <laughs> I mean, admittedly, you know, where the, where Freddy was conceived was in the closed wing of this same hospital, but her being a ghost is too much. I think it would be much better if, if it was Freddy's, Freddy's mother still alive trying to do some good in the world. Yeah, I've been wanting to track down, um, there's a novelization of this movie that's based on Wes Craven's original script, which I guess is quite a bit different, um, but I've never checked it out. Um, also, it's worth noting, there is a Nintendo game called A Nightmare in Elm Street that's based on this film that's terrible, but you play as one, one of the kids, and you go through, um, I think it's supposed to be the house from the first film, and you're collecting Freddy's body parts. And uh, you can even play, I think, four players simultaneously. It was one of the few games that supported the uh, Nintendo uh, Entertainment System uh, four-player uh, modules you could plug in there. Uh, no, Matt, let me get this straight. Are you saying that a Nintendo game based on a movie is terrible? That That's right. It may be hard to believe. And even as a kid, I would ask for movie games on purpose because I loved movies and I loved <laughs> video games. And I thought, oh, how could they lead me wrong? And so I, I ended up having such weird duds in my home collection as um, not Nightmare on Elm Street, funny enough, but uh, The Addams Family based on the Raul Julia film. And also uh, Yo Noid based on the um, <laughs> Domino's tie-in uh, character who uh, wanted to mess up your pizza. You ever play the Cool Spot video game? Uh, yeah, on Sega Genesis. Yeah, that one's actually not bad, but sure. Um, it was, yeah, but, man, I do miss movie video games, and in fact, I'm, I'll, I'll, I'll plug myself really quick, uh, I, because it's my show, I can do that. Uh, <laughs> I, I do, I'm doing a YouTube show, uh, it's only two episodes, it's going to be six episodes altogether, it's called Stallone in the Dark, and it's looking at video games based on <laughs> Sylvester Stallone movies. And, um, man, those are pretty rough. I played uh, Rocky on the Sega Master System. I'm doing one now on Cliffhanger on Sega CD. And the uh, Cliffhanger was quite a fun film to revisit. But man, that game is just oh, bad, are bad, bad. Are you going to get to Demolition Man or Judge Dredd at any point? Uh, yeah, those are the next two ones. And I need to think of a sixth one. Um, Maybe Rambo for the Nintendo, which is this <laughs> terrible maze game. And they make Stallone look like a mongoloid in the cutscene. Um, so we... We kind of lost the thread. We but, did. So kind of, more than kind of. Sure. The, the, bo the bones <laughs> of Freddy were dumped. It were like locked in the back of a, a, a Cadillac. And I, uh, I don't know if you you caught this, but I believe the Cadillac he's locked into is the same model of Cadillac that Freddy appears as at the end of the first Nightmare on Elm Street. Ooh. Maybe. 
when he's that convertible. But yeah, so they go out to bury the bones, and while this is going on, the surviving teens uh, and Nancy are in the dream world trying to deal with Freddy Krueger, and he almost has them, but then he disappears, but then Freddy's bones animate, which does bring up... Okay, so this is a power you have. Is there a reason why you haven't been an animated skeleton at any other at any other time? It does feel like a, a time where they kind of throw out the rule book that they've established. Because uh-huh. like, it's a great sequence. It's amazingly well shot, but it does seem to come out of nowhere. It does, and I do see John Saxon. You get to see him throw a punch, which is exciting, but I was hoping for more of a karate fight or something, um, <laughs> given his background in the martial arts pictures like Enter the Dragon. But, uh, yeah, it's and it's nice to see uh, John Saxon as, as the, the father have a little bit of an arc in that he's washed up and he's, he's just a complete asshole to Nancy when uh, they come and visit him, and he's, he's very... Uh, he, he wants to run away with his flask and hide... But that he uh, he he dies, doesn't he? I'm trying to remember. Uh, yeah, he gets uh, he gets knocked back by the skeleton and gets impaled. Impaled. That's a right. Piece of jagged metal in the junkyard. Yeah, which was a, a pretty gruesome way to go. But yeah, the animation of the skeleton is, is quite good, and you get sort of the you know they try to bury the skeleton. The skeleton tries to bury them. Meanwhile, all the the teens are in this. Um, hallway with all these crazy doors and they're, you know, apart and trying to join together. But, you know, the the doctor does get knocked unconscious and thrown into the grave and the bones crumble. Freddy returns to the dream world. Uh, I love that bit where they're in the hall of mirrors and Freddy appears in all the mirrors. It's just nice and creepy. But then the boy who was frightened and became mute uh, he, we learned that his power in the dream is that he has a powerful voice and he's able to shatter all the mirrors and free everyone from the mirror prisons. Much like Michael Jackson in the music video Scream. <laughs> <laughs> like, I do like that we do get to see everyone use their power uh, pretty effectively, even, even though they all still do get knocked off one by one. I look at um, Ken Sagos in this film plays Roland who's the African-American who gains super strength. And I can't help but think of a similar character in um, Friday the 13th, uh, oh, uh, Manhattan, where there's one... Oh, Jason takes Manhattan. Yeah, where um, a similar sort of character gets his head punched off by uh, Jason. But anyway, you know, that's just some, some loose memory I had about that. Uh, let's see. But, um, yeah, go on. So we're, we're getting so you know people are still getting knocked off. They do free. They do free the mute boy who's been t- being literally being held hostage in the dream world. Um, the final the final confrontation is weird because you know people people are you know the kids are still dying. You now Freddy has them at their mercy, but the doctor uh, regains consciousness crawls out of the grave, knocks Freddy's bones into the grave, and starts spraying holy water on them uh, that he swiped from a church. Um, and I, I'll admit, I don't think that counts as hallowed ground. I always felt that, at least in the Catholic tradition, like the actual, there was a particular blessing that a priest had to do. But, you know, whatever, it, it works in the movie. I, I just, I don't know. I like the idea of Freddy being defeated, and I like that it takes a lot of effort and yet, I don't know if I'm entirely satisfied with just holy water being dumped on his bones being what does it. 
Yeah, it is a little it is a little weak sauce. But then, of course, you get uh, Nancy confronting him in the dream world, plunging his own glove into him uh, to yeah. get that going sure. as well, which I think is is a more satisfying um, way to end him. Uh, it 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 always feels the 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 auto graveyard uh, sequence always feels to me a little bit like, well, we've got John Saxon for the weekend. <laughs> It does, and uh, John Saxon gets a a great scene where, as Don, he talks to Nancy and sort of apologizes, and uh, but it's actually Freddie in disguise. But there's a nice bit of sincere dramatic acting there between the two of them. It it definitely feels like we we they they wanted to give Saxon and uh, Craig Lawson uh, Mm. a a little something more to do, a little more agency in the plot. Um, But it's nice to have that kind of dual battle going on. It is, and although uh, I agree, Thrasher, with the, the holy water, that's not entirely effective, but it it works well enough, and it ends, as we mentioned, with the uh, tombstone revealing that the nun, or, you know, is Amanda Kruger, and, um, yeah, I mean, I, I'm really surprised at how good this film holds up. For some reason, I remembered this as one of the worst ones, but I think I'm getting it confused with one of the many, many sequels. It doesn't help that this one is called The Dream Warriors, and the next film is called The Dream Master. <laughs> and I certainly get those confused. I mean, the kills are great. It's the best effects we've seen in the film so far. Good mm-hmm. story, great characters. Freddy has a tremendous amount of personality, but he's not—he's not an overbearing jokester that that weakens the horror of of the film. The, the his his humor, his humor, if anything, makes the horror sharper by through the contrast. Uh, I really enjoyed this film. Yeah, it strikes a good balance, I think, between the comedy and the horror and the surrealism and the darkness, all that stuff. Uh, Russell, would you recommend Nightmare on Elm Street 3? Oh my gosh, yes. It's my favorite of the sequels. Hmm. And although I think uh, the first one obviously is the best movie sure. of all of them, the third one is the most uh, easily watchable. Ah, sure. Uh, in terms of if I want to see a Freddy Krueger movie, I think Dream Warriors is the one I'm going for because it has it all, and you know, and you get a Dawkin song in there as well. I mean, come on, Dream Warriors. <laughs> I always wonder if they didn't include that song because the previous year you had uh, Friday the Thirteenth Six, Jason Lives, which also kind of had like a you know Alice like Cooper off of a. Yeah, yeah, the Alice uh-huh. Cooper song, and also that movie had a little more humor in it, mm. gave Jason a little more personality after, uh, in Friday the 13th case, you know, part five or whatever, which was kind of a considered a lackluster one. And I feel like Elm Street was kind of mirroring that and went, okay, how do we, how do we get back on track? Let's make Freddy a little more funny, and let's let's get some metal for the kids, and uh, it's uh, it's interesting. But yeah, I uh, I really love three. Um, it's just, it's just fun. Thrasher? I, I'm going to give this a firm sequel, yes. I really enjoyed this film. I I had such a, like, it works as a, as a film, but it was just, just legitimately entertaining from beginning to end. The only thing I didn't like about this movie was the DVD we watched it on, which before the menu main menu comes up, it shows you a montage of all the best kills in this movie that you can't skip. That is horrible oh. DVDs. Oh, I hate that. That's yeah. 
that is annoying. Well, he, he did have a widescreen version, so that was quite nice. Yeah, um, I saw the Blu-ray. I don't think it had that, although Blu-ray menus tend to be much um, lazier than the DVD menus tended to be. Um, what else? Yeah, no, I, I really like the Activity Sequel, yes, as well. Good film, smart, scary, funny, all, all sorts of things. It, it juggles a lot of balls and keeps them all in the air. Uh, I, I will say, if you like uh, Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and you like these pictures, uh, a sort of hidden gem that I reviewed on a double feature um, Shout Factory disc, or Scream Factory technically, as it turns out, was Bad Dreams, a film from 80, 1988, directed and written by Andrew Fleming. Oh, what yes. It, 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 it reminds me of this film because it's characters in a psychiatric ward and they die under, you know, it's sort of similar to a Nightmare on Elm Street uh, concept. And it's on a double feature disc with Visiting Hours, which is a odd um, slasher film set in a hospital starring Michael Ironside and William Shatner. But Bad Dreams has Jennifer Rubin in the lead. Um, you know, lesser known, Elizabeth Daly's in it, so not as well-known actors, but it has some clever effects, including um, some disturbing kills with, with old men killing themselves, and it has the Aerosmith song Dream On uh, on the end credits. And actually, a bit of trivia, that song was written for that movie, but then they wouldn't let the director do the music video because... Um, Oh, Steve Tyler's girlfriend said, oh, but you wrote this song for me, didn't you, honey? And then he had oh. to say, oh, I, yes, honey, I wrote it for you. And <laughs> anyway, that's the story Andrew Fleming tells in the commentary for that. But Bad Dreams is a quirky little film. Uh, also, if you like Nightmare on Elm Street, you might want to check out Dreamscape, which is a odd little picture. Oh, I love Dreamscape. <laughs> have you seen that uh, one, Thrasher? Oh, I don't believe I have. It's with, uh, oh, oh, uh, Dennis Quaid? Dennis Quaid. Yes. Dennis Quaid, Kate Capshaw, and uh, David Patrick Kelly, uh, who was uh, Warriors, come out and play. Oh, yeah, right, yeah. Uh, and, yeah, and in a dozen other movies of that time. It's, uh, yeah, and also... Oh, sort looking of... at, I, actually, looking at the poster for Dreamscape, this looks real, the Cobra looks really familiar. I think I might have seen yeah it could be it's um i mean that poster is a real indiana jones knockoff but yeah it's <laughs> max von Sydow. yeah interesting weird weird film uh but if you like nightmare on elm street you'll probably like that as well well russell thanks so much for for coming on this morning to uh talk about nightmare on elm street three with us oh, thanks for having me uh really it was appreciate awesome it. having you on the show absolutely oh. is um is there anything you'd like to uh plug or talk about oh man no um i, I want to plug you guys because this this is this is a great show oh thank and, you uh thank you. no and uh really thanks thanks for having me this is this is the first time i've gotten to do this in this uh quote-unquote pop culture historian uh capacity uh so uh no just thanks for having me uh keep buying physical media yeah no i'll, I'll shout on that and I'll, I'll i'll say one one last uh thing um i actually won a contest i don't need more physical media in my house uh my wife is getting a little annoyed with my tower of blu-rays and dvds but uh, i won a contest from fox of they did a reissue of about 20 of their horror films with day of the dead themed artwork 
Oh yes, yes, yes. And I won that. I won that whole set, which is the last thing I need. But I might do something with the artwork because it's very pretty. I don't recall the artist, but um, sort of surreal. I mean, especially there's one a Day of the Dead uh, meets Chucky thing that's just sort of uh, wonderfully horrific. (laughs) Pretty cool. All right. Well, thanks. uh, Thanks so much, Russell. And we'll uh, we'll we'll shoot you a link when the show goes up. All right. Thank you very much. All right. Welcome. Bye. Bye. Okay, Thrasher, so we're uh, keeping on to uh, record here. And, uh, uh, do you need me to set up? Uh, no, 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 I, I'm just recording everything oh, on my end. Cool. So I, want, I, I did want to talk about, we've talked about the posters for the first two movies, so I wanted to talk about the poster for this one. Yeah, go, go for it. Th- this this feels like a poster that was made before the movie was made because we do get we do get a really cool image of four four people walking on the edge of Freddy's blades towards yeah. Freddy's head. Well, in and this poster, this poster, unlike the ones for the other two films, Freddy Krueger actually looks like Freddy Krueger. Oh yeah, but but also like they're clearly meant to represent specific characters from from the movie. Uh, you know, there's a character with a, a, a gray streak in her hair. That's definitely Nancy. There's mm-hmm. a girl with blades, uh, so that's definitely Taryn. Uh, the, there's a guy with a mace who's probably the kid who who, who liked D and D. Probably. But they don't look anything like the no, characters. No, very very off model. And and to be fair, you are looking at their backs, but I mean the hair is wrong for the girl with the blades and and the mace thing especially. Yeah, and uh, the guy in the far left, I assume, is the strong guy. But then he has a billy club, yes. which is yeah. an, an odd thing. Um, when, when, I like, and then you know, I do like the slogan: "If you think you'll get out alive, you must be dreaming." Right. Very cool. Um, yeah, no, no, pretty good film. Uh, let's do. Um, I think we're running a bit late. We can skip pitch a sequel, maybe, and uh, just go on to uh, what you're watching. Well, my pitch a sequel, just to make it quick. Oh, sure. Being all of Freddy's fathers coming back for a minute. Whoa, all 10,000. There you go. Well, all 100. I think they said 100. I don't think they had 10,000. Oh, I'm thinking of 10,000 Maniacs. That's something different. Okay. Which I believe Eglin was in the remake of that. I think you're right. He's done a lot of horror films. Difficult to keep track. And he's 70, which surprised me. Um, He's older than I thought he was. He's kept himself in good shape. Um, Yeah, I guess really quick, if I was doing a picture sequel... uh, I would do something with, oh, with no, uh, no, you know, maybe, maybe the the house from the first uh, film, it gets it gets knocked down. You know, it's too old fashioned. They want to put a new house on top of it. You know, a new sort of like McMansion because that the the neighborhood oh. is getting more of scale, and so um, the construction crew wantonly goes knocks everything down. They. Uh, you know, as we, we see sort of a montage I, uh, over the opening credits of them building a new house on top of it. And then, once we see that, um, we see, you know, the, the glove in the boiler room gets covered up and all that stuff. And then uh, a new family moves in, and it's it's trying to go back to the tone of the first film. Uh, so it'd be more of a slow burn, and you get to know the characters before they start dying off. And it, it turns out, because... Uh, Freddy Krueger, so much of his uh, identity and his experience was tied to that original house, because that's where he died. That he... No, he didn't die in the house. That's where they hit his glove. Well, okay. Sorry. 
uh, because that's where they hit his glove and he has so much power to the glove that he decides to um, he physically becomes part of the house and the house is alive it would be more like an Amityville horror uh, sort of take on the character it would be called Nightmare on Elm Street 4 Dream House I guess mine would have been called Dream Child, which I know well, they use. They like, use, but it's yes, Dream, Dream, Dream Fathers, <laughs> Perchance to Dream. Daddy's uh, a little dreamer. Not bad. Yeah. <laughs> dream, Dreamsicle. No, I, I don't even, even know what I'm saying. <laughs> Daylight saving time has me thrown for a loop. Um. Okay. So, let's go on to uh, what you're watching. Uh, I've been watching some some very interesting uh, things lately. I've had some more time on my hands lately. But um, one thing I have thoroughly enjoyed is um, there's a guy on YouTube, uh, Movie Bob. And he's he does a lot of law and forum critiques of, of things. And he's... Uh, has posted part one of two of a uh, pretty savage yet, in my mind, accurate takedown of Batman v Superman, Dawn of Justice. And part one is 90 minutes long. Um, he goes into some quite long tangents, but it, he, he knows his stuff, uh, both in the comic book and the movie realm, and he uh, adroitly points out, it does a lot of good compare and contrast between uh, what the modern DC universe um, in the movies is doing compared to what the Marvel Cinematic Universe has been doing and how they already had, you know, and, and his, his uh, core argument, at least in the v part of the video I've seen so far, I haven't finished the whole thing, is the Avengers showed you how to do a superhero ensemble film that really worked, that really connected with people. Batman v Superman came out, you know, a a few years quite a few years later and yet they make pretty obvious mistakes when they could have ripped off tone and things from avengers to be more uh uh crowd pleasing or i, I don't am i making sense here uh, to, to, an, to an extent you are I and mean, i i definitely have criticisms uh with with that film many of which i think i've mentioned on previous episodes so i, I won't try to i won't retread that ground now <laughs> Right, but um, you might get a kick out of it. Another video he did that was quite good is uh, appreciation of Transformers the movie. And oh, that I have seen. That was very good. Oh, did you? Yeah. Uh, and, and he goes into pretty good, pretty smart detail. Um, full disclosure, I am, I won't say fr friends, but I'm an acquaintance with the uh, one of the main writers of the animated Transformers movie, Flint Dill. And, oh, cool. Um, He's told me some some interesting stories about that time, and uh, it was one of those situations where he should have got script credit but didn't, and also because it's an animated thing that makes things um, with the Writers Guild more complicated. Yeah, because I think that was that was before animation writers were part of the Writers Guild. I believe that's right, but uh, Flint also worked on things like GI Joe, and. Um, Oh, did uh, lately done some video game stuff? Did some writing for Diablo three, and uh, I, I'm not sure the about his his latest. Stuff. It does a, some Transformers comics. Um, so it's a pretty pretty neat guy. Pretty interesting. Like maybe I should try to get him on as a guest, or maybe for a short interview or something. Uh, that could be sort of fun. Yeah. Um, 
Transformers. Okay, what were they talking about? Yeah, okay, so that, that's what I've been watching. Thrasher? Uh, so I saw Thor Ragnarok. Oh, that's right, yes. Um, and this is the third Thor film, but it's the most recent movie in Phase 3 of the Marvel Cinematic Universe. And I'm a bit confused. Um, I'll look up and see what else is remaining in Phase 3, but uh, what did you think of it? And more importantly, um, what films did uh, you think or must-watches before watching this one? What other ones does it tie in with the most? Uh, it's, strangely enough, it ties in the most with Age of Ultron. You, you really don't have to see the previous... I mean, I guess... You, you, yeah, you should, I guess, see Thor The Dark World, uh, if only... If your only experience with with Marvel are the movies, then yeah, you probably should see Thor: The Dark World too. Um, but beyond that, the movie is overall pretty self-contained, and if you know the characters from the comics, you would you would have no trouble just jumping straight in because like Loki's introduction in this film, if you knew the comics, you'd, oh, that, this makes perfect sense. I don't need to know how it was set up in the previous film. I'm going to tread lightly because the film just came out and I have not seen it myself, but um, what do you think of, uh, is Jeff Goldblum suitably Jeff Goldblum? It's the most Jeff Goldblum he's ever been. It, he he does a wonderful job as the Grandmaster. Does it, um, I, I'm a bit surprised with these Marvel films, how slow they've been at uh, pushing forward the narrative with the uh, Infinity Gems? D- does it they, push that a bit they, more? Because we they had... address that. Actually, okay. there, there's kind of a, there's a joke about that early on in the movie. And it's really it's really quick, but they, they do have a joke essentially about the narrative role that the Infinity Stones play in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. Because I thought we would have seen that stuff um, before now. Don't you? Because I mean, you, you get that sort of tease at the end of uh, in the Avengers or in one of those films. Um, it's been so long since I've seen the older ones. Well, you, you mentioned last time that you didn't get to the end of Doctor Strange. Correct. But the final act of Doctor Strange goes into some detail on the Infinity Stones. Okay, so I'll probably have to watch that on my own time. That being the case, because I'm curious. Um, I'm just yeah, shit. I'm looking up a list here. What the hell? Phase three. I'm not. I think it's. I think isn't it? Is it just straight up Black Panther and then Infinity War Part One? I, I think you're right. Yeah, because 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 the, the trailer for Black Panther came out and that looked quite uh, quite intriguing. Uh, so or are Black... we supposed to get Captain Marvel before Infinity War? You know, they're doing production on that too. It's probably like Black Panther. I'm not. I can't find a list for the life of me, but uh, it's probably Black Panther, um, Avengers. Three part one, Captain Marvel, and Avengers three part two. It's it's oh, okay. it's gonna be it's something like that. And I, I do recall in one of the uh, Avengers three movies, um, in an interview, someone said you get some scene with like thirty superheroes just duking it out with aliens and stuff, which is pretty cool. It's sort of the the next. Oh, actually, it looks like Ant Man and the Wasp is supposed to come out before uh, Infinity War part two as well. Is Captain Marvel on the list that you found, or no? Uh, yes, it had, uh, the list I found has uh, Captain Marvel coming out before Infinity War Part Two. I see. Interesting. Um, yeah, so we'll have to see. And, and what they do afterwards is what I think is really interesting. Are we going to get remakes of Iron Man? Are they going to be new characters taking on the mantle? 
Um, is I, it going to be? I hope. What I hope. Yeah. Is that after the Infinity War, I hope that they're done with with Marvel movies as they've been doing them. I hope that that marks the end. I because the only thing they could do afterwards is Secret War, and I don't think Secret War. Secret War wasn't that good in the comics. I can't imagine them turning that into into a good movie. I would hope they give us give us some time to breathe, and then start a whole new slate of Marvel movies that use some of the lesser known or more poor realized properties. Well, since we're talking um, superheroes, I, I, there's one bit of news that popped up not too long ago, and it makes me wonder. Um, so Sony, with the rights of Spider-Man, it's somewhat convoluted, but they're you know, involved in letting the the Marvel films, you know, basically Disney, do stuff with the Spider-Man characters, and yet Sony on their own is still going to do Spider-Man spinoffs that do not tie into the Marvel continuity, uh, I believe. And and the first one they've they've announced is Venom, and Tom Hardy, who played Bane in The Dark Knight Rises, is playing Venom. Um, what do you think about a Venom standalone film? Because they've been trying to do one of those for a while. As flat out. Standalone? I don't know. I don't feel. I don't feel Venom works as a character on his own. He has to have somebody he's he's going up against, and I don't. And he work. He also works best as a villain. Um, mm. So unless the movie's going to be like Bonnie and Clyde with a shape shifting alien parasite, I'm I'm not all that interested. I would love to see. We talk. We we're talking about what Marvel might do post Phase Three. Um, I almost want them to do something like, okay, now from now on the movies are going to be in an alternate universe. It might be the Ultimates or something, right? Just do a total clean slate and not be beholden to all the continuity of the 30 movies or whatever it is uh, they've done to date. Yeah. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't mind a clean break. I also wouldn't mind a break of uh, less superhero movies. I, I, like, this sounds stupid because I, I do like superheroes, and as a kid, I was like, oh, I wish they'd make comics of all these things, or movies of all these comics. But no, it, no, thought, it, it's, it's becoming a bit exhausting. Um, no, I thought I, about that for both yeah. Marvel and for Star Wars. Like, uh-huh, I would love yeah. it if they just took a year off. But they're not just going to. Take a year to, off, right? don't put anything yeah. out, let us get hungry again. Right. Um,. Oh, I, I, I want to touch on a, a movie I saw really quick, and if I talked about this in the show before, stop me, but um, Cult of Chucky, the latest Child's Play film. Oh, yeah, you mentioned it, but you didn't really go into detail. Mm-hmm. Um, do you like the series? Overall, yes, I do enjoy the Child's Play series. Yeah, this one is more of a direct follow-up to the one before this, which is Curse of Chucky, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you see that or one? Spawn of Chucky, or Seed of Chucky. No, 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 uh, after Seed of Chucky, there is one... That stars the daughter of um, Brad Dwarf in the lead role, and I think called Curse of Chucky, and this latest one, Cult of Chucky, it is sort of a direct sequel to that. Although it, yeah, if you hadn't watched that one, you'd be confused with this one. But it also has tie-ins to even the first three films in the series and makes reference to them. And a Cult of Chucky is really for super fans. Like it, unless you're really familiar with the whole series, you'll be kind of lost. And in that way, it's a bit like a, a Saw movie. And um, they do twist at the end that you're either going to love or going to hate. Okay. But, and I'll just say it involves... Uh, well, in the, I'll just say this. In the original Child's Play movie, it's there's the, the murderer guy played by Brad, Brad Dreyf. I don't, I don't recall the, the character's name. 
but he gets he you know is getting shot by the cops and he uses a, a voodoo ritual to trans to possess a, a toy doll right the theme of possession of him trying to possess someone else is, is something in a lot of the sequels and it's especially so in cult of chucky i'll just leave it at that so so i'm i'm looking up some some stuff on the the current child's play uh uh, franchise, and you were you were correct in your timeline of the sequels, but apparently uh, Don Mancini, who's executive produced and directed some of the newer movies, and he's written he's all the movies, yeah. in the process of pitching Child's Play on Elm Street. What really? He's he's trying. Huh. He's taking a stab at trying to get a Child's Play Nightmare on Elm Street crossover made. I think that would work very well. They're both um, sort of... We, we touched on this in our discussion with Russell about Nightmare on Elm Street 3, the Dream Warriors. But, yeah, it's it's very... Um, they're sort of similar characters, I think, don't you? In that they, they make quips, they kill people. Uh, they have a lot of personality. It would yes. be kind of fun seeing it. I guess I hate... This is my comparison, but in Avengers of, of horror movies. Sure. Why not? I mean, Universal did that in the 40s with House of Dracula and uh, Frankenstein versus the Wolfman and all that stuff. And Abbott and Costello can show up. Well, uh, who would the modern Abbott and Costello be? Uh, Red Man and Method Man. <laughs> and we really don't have comedy duos anymore. <laughs> no, I mean, I, I'm thinking of comedy franchises. You had, like, the American Pie guys. Um, Key and Peele, maybe? Key and Peele, yeah. Um, you know, he also, he also did, uh, uh, at one point, as revealed through the Sony hack of the emails, um, they were talking about doing uh, a sequel to 22 Jump Street that would have been a Men in Black crossover. That sounds fantastic. I, but, I do remember rumors about that. But that, that didn't come to pass, and I think they're uh, doing sort of a soft reboot on Men in Black. Which, well, why not? Why not have Men in Black crossover with Ghostbusters? You know, the aliens that died in the Roswell crash come back to haunt a small town, and so the Ghostbusters oh, wow. team up to stop them. I'm available, Hollywood. Yeah, Men in Black, or you could do Men in Black a crossover with, uh, or Ghostbusters crossover with the Frighteners. Um, maybe I not. Know, like, I want to see them crossover with a completely different, a completely different thing, like ghosts and aliens are two very different things. That's why I want to see a crossover there. If you could work in time travel, maybe, have Back to the Future, maybe they have to travel back in time to the Roswell crash <laughs> uh, to prevent it. Marty, we got to stop the alien from probing your sister. Oh, Doc, this is heavy. No, Marty, I just lost 20 pounds. I don't know what you're talking about. That's highly offensive. Wow, Doc. This isn't radical, bobatical, as the kids say in the 80s, which is where I am from. Now, loosen oh, up your... I'm just embarrassed myself. I think the Michael J. Fox might be my worst impression. And my, uh... <laughs> my Christopher Lloyd sounds a little bit like Shecky Spielboy. Uh, speaking of which, we, we have a call from him. Um, oh, hey, Shecky! Up this show. What's up? How you doing, Trasha? It, it's been a long time, uh... I, you, uh, it has been. I've been meaning to talk to you about what you were doing in Hollywood when the Nightmare on Elm Street series was at its peak. Right, right. So uh, a lot of the horror films, uh, Elm Street, Dreams, and what I did, uh, I thought, hmm, Nightmare on Elm Street, Elm, that's a kind of tree. So I just called, I said, hmm, I don't know trees, so mine is called uh, Nightmare on the Street. 
and step it's, up to the nightmare on the street. No, no, just nightmare on the street, and uh, it 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 stars uh, my my cousin Bobo Shecky in in the lead as the scary killer Dreamy. Just just Dreamy. Yeah, and it, it was he Dreamy? Was he attractive in a kind of classic way? Or? Uh, no, you see, he, Trasher, this is, this might be a bit too subtle for you, but he's called Dreamy because he goes in people's dreams. But is he still burned up like a weenie? Uh, that would require special effects, so no. But he has a, he has a pillowcase. He has a pillowcase over his head that's painted uh, with black stripes, kind of like a, a zebra. Now, I heard that there were problems on set in part because you insisted that there be no holes cut in the pillowcase for the actor to see through. Uh, correct. Poor uh, my my poor cousin Bobo Shecky uh, almost got paralyzed on set. He uh, had had his opening scene. He walked down a uh, a hundred foot staircase that also uh, it was in my my great aunt's house up in the hills. So a, a spiraling staircase, and he had to walk down step by step while making the uh, making the dreamy noise. What was the dreamy noise? What was the sound design on that? Ah. Gee, the dreamy noise, uh, since he would sound muffled, I made the dreamy noise behind the camera myself as we're filming live. That way we didn't have to dub it over later. And the dreamy noise was... I know it's not as scary as it could have been. Uh, I, I sort of went with the moment, went with the inspiration... And uh, there you have it. So uh, the, the the picture, the name on my memory is failing me. It's called uh, Nightmare on the Street. Is that right? Yeah, Nightmare on the Street. Nightmare on the Street, sure. So the movie what opens. What kind of kills were in that movie? What kind of what? What kind of kills were in that movie? Kills, yeah, yeah, yeah. So uh, there's a scene. A teacher is, is walking around uh, smoking a cigar on his lunch break. And he, he falls asleep. And he wakes up. And he's holding the cigar but the cigar has a pillowcase on the end with stripes, just like Dreamy. And he uh, he opens. I, I, I'm just laughing because of all the, the smoke that caused on the set. Smoke is always funny to me. So he uh, he woke up, and he goes, Whoa! And then you're not sure if it's a dream or if it's reality. Those are those hard-hitting scares we had on Nightmare on the Street. Now you're 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 so old. Did they did they have national anthems back when you were young? Uh, yeah, and the, the stickball games, sure. Well, the, we need to get Carl Reiner uh, in here. I, I think so, but uh, anyhow, Nightmare on the on the Street. We uh, tried to release it in one theater. By theater, I mean my uh, my cousin Bobo's basement. Oddly enough, if you invite kids, come to Bobo's basement. We're going to watch a film. Uh, a lot of them don't show up. People don't know that. But, uh, so that's two men in your family named Bobo. Is that a family name? It is. You know, the original uh, Bobo Shecky came in on, on, on a ship from uh, from Poland a long time ago. He also was with them a mouse, uh, Fibo Mouskowitz. Oh, so, so your first name is, you were named after an ancestor's last name. Yes. Bobo Shecky. Shecky Spielboig. Oh, so the Sheckys married the Spielboigs. No, my original name, uh, as you uh, 
thought was Shecky, Shecky. But then to move to Hollywood to be more famous, I changed it to Spielboig to, to sound like a certain famous director. I'm talking, of course, about Robert Zemeckis. Who is also, who is also your nephew. He, he is, uh, yeah. We, we, we don't talk very much. After I made the movie Back to the Past, the Future. Which is the sequel. Yeah, th- which was also a prequel. Th- the sequel, which was called "Back in Time: The McFly Chronicles." You you have an amazing filmography, Shecky. I do. It's uh, and deep and wide as my colon. Speaking of which, I got a colonoscopy in about a, about a minute. So, any more questions about Nightmare on the Street? Uh, no, just just that uh, there's rumors of a big budget remake. Who do you want to have uh, play Dreamy? Big budget remake. Hmm. As as dreamy, I always thought of him as uh, Engelbert Humperdinck type. The musician Engelbert Humperdinck. That's right. What a face. What a sound. But you wouldn't be able to hear or see him because of the pillowcase. Well, uh, he he has good uh, he has good facial structure. The way the shadows would portray in the pillowcase. Really so you just you would fill out the pillowcase the right way. Kate. He'd fill it out just the right way, in every sense of the word. Oh, I know what you mean, Shecky. I know what you mean. Uh, I'll just say this. His last name is Humperdinck for a reason. Emphasis on the dink. Oh, so he, he's inspired, he, he's modeled his life after that guy from those books about a guy at Harvard? No, he's modeled his life after the, uh, uh, you're not very quick on the uptake, Trasher. He models his life on after the dinks from Mel Brooks's Spaceballs. Oh! Dink, 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 dink. I did not see that coming. Neither did I, neither did I. Well, my I got a, my, my doctor's uh, standing right behind my rectum about to, to stick something in it to, to try and remove a few lollipops. So, uh, if, 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 uh, if I may, I, I have to excuse myself. No problem. I'm just happy I was able to make a Dink Stover reference on this podcast. Slid it in without any grease. Thank you, Shecky. Always a pleasure, Shecky Spielberg. <coughs> pleasure is one word to use. Yeah, he... Um... Man, this has been quite an episode. You know, Russell Diebold is such a great guest to talk about Nightmare on Elm Street 3 and, and such a, and other, you know, cult films from that era. Uh, and and we had a pretty good discussion about Marvel. And uh, this has been a pretty uh, a ham, and, ham and egg of an episode, yeah. So, it's a triple-barreled shotgun of an episode. Next time on Sequel Cast 2. You know, I guess you want to plug anything, Thrasher? Uh, not the moment i don't have there's nothing there's nothing new lined up that's going to be out around the time this episode drops but i'm hoping uh, next episode i'll have some good news good um i yeah i don't have anything to plug either so i don't know why i asked that question i'm not going to cut this part from the show though because the longer you listen <laughs> the more you know how the sausage is made with very little editing as it turns out um for a sequel cast to uh you can follow blah, 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 blah. You can daily savings time. You can follow us on Twitter 
Uh, follow the show at SequelCast2. Leave us a uh, review on the Apple Podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are found. You can also listen to us on Stitcher. Follow me on Twitter at MATWBT. You can follow me on Twitter at Internet Mayor. For SequelCast2, this is Matt. And this is Thrasher. Same. Welcome to prime time, bitch. Okay, I love prime time. Wait, why is my face going in a TV? Oh, this hurts. The glass. The the motherboard. Slowly killing you. The 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 uh your your hot fetid breath. The uh the the sound the sound chips the the speakers the subwoofer. It's all going into my face and piercing my skin and it's bleeding and pieces are filling out and oh god analog tv kills are so much satisfying than flat screen tv kills the theme song to sequel cast 2 was written and performed by mark with a c Listen to his music at markwithac.com. Follow SequelCast2 on Twitter at SequelCast2. Listen to the show streaming on Stitcher. And don't forget to support the show on Patreon for as low as $1 a month at patreon.com slash SequelCast2. This program is a proud member of the Battleship Pretension Fleet. 